for me, the lessons have been about how you know, how to be with the land that you're on and to be able to hear the trees and the rocks and the animals and to know that we are a part of that. There's this ways of living in a good way with all the beings of the land and the spirits of the land. And that that's what we're called to, into being. Welcome to Entangled World, where we explore our interrelated existential, social, economic, ecological, and technological challenges, their underlying drivers, and how a more beautiful world might emerge. I'm your host, Nadia Shawkat Lepsen. I'm a daughter of Pakistani Muslim immigrants, a mom, and an intersystems thinker. Join me on a journey to discover what is uniquely and meaningfully ours to do at this pivotal moment in time in service to the sacredness of life. My guest today is Kathleen Rude. Kathleen fell in love with the natural world as a young child and found her voice for environmental activism at the tender age of 10. She was raised liberal Lutheran in a household steeped in Jungian psychology. She was initiated by Blackfoot Northern Ute and Lakota elders into indigenous spiritual practices and studied core shamanism with Betsy Bergstrom and Sandra Ingerman. She is a shamanic practitioner, teacher, and ceremonial leader. She was also mentored by Joanna Macy, internationally acclaimed eco-philosopher and root teacher of The Work That Reconnects. She serves as a weaver in The Work That Reconnects Network. Kathleen shares how the teachings of Indigenous elders have profoundly influenced her beliefs about humanity not being separate from nature, but part of it, and brought an added dimension to her activism and conservation work. She also began to see how interconnected the issues she was working on were, and how trying to solve them in isolation is not only impossible, but also futile. We dig deeper into Joanna Macy's work, so if you've been curious about that, either as someone who wants to experience it or facilitate it, this episode will give you a great overview. Kathleen's journey is a wonderful example of how allowing your passion, interest, and values to guide you opens the doorway for you to offer what you are uniquely and meaningfully here to bring into the world. I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you do, please subscribe or follow on your favorite podcast app or subscribe to the Entangled World Pod YouTube channel. Hi, Kathleen. It's so nice to see you again today and to have you here for this conversation. Thank you. It's so good to be here. Thanks for the invite. Yeah, absolutely. I am excited to talk with you. I know we first met through Joanna Macy's work that reconnects in a workshop that we did online together that you so beautifully facilitated and held the space for our group. And there's actually so many practices from that experience that I'm still taking with me. And so we'll, we'll, we might hit on that a little bit later. But right. to start, I'd just love to hear what's your story? I grew up in um, a family of educators. So my parents were teachers and grew up north of Chicago in the United States, Midwest part of the United States. Very, prog- I would say, a progressive family. 
raised liberal Lutheran. My parents both very involved with Jungian psychology. And so I grew up in that space. And most importantly, or as important, I grew up across the street from the woods. And that was a conscious choice on my parents' part. And at an early age was in playing in the woods and just fell in love with being in that space and hearing the trees and hearing the water and the birds. And my maternal grandmother, Mary Margaret Springhorn, was a real animal lover, as was I. And in, so when I was around 10 or 11 years old, she had joined an organization called the Fund for Animals, which was an animal rights organization. And she got me a membership. Uh, and it just so happened that year they were opening an office in Chicago. I was living in, we were in the suburbs. And so my dad would hop, you know, we'd hop in the car and he'd drive his 11-year-old daughter down into the, the big city of Chicago. And I would go to these meetings. They were starting to gather in hotel, in a hotel room at, at first. And so I got to be in the ground level of, of bringing this organization to Chicago. And the adults embraced me. And so I started in with my activism when I was uh, 11 years old and going to these meetings, I saved my babysitting money and make donations. Well, and yeah, so they, I got involved in doing, learning about legislation and we did some protests. And, and so then all through high school, then I was doing educational talks. So I was trying to educate people about the fur industry and the cruelty of steel jaw traps and in a very affluent area where every woman had two or three fur coats. And so here I was going, giving my talks at women's luncheons and bringing my steel jaw trap and showing them how cruel it was to use. And so then I thought, yeah, I really need the science and the biology to go along with this passion of what I felt was right and wrong. So I went and got degrees in wildlife ecology and natural resources management. I came in at a time when women still weren't really a part of the wildlife ecology world and certainly found a lot of sexism in my department. Uh, but also, too, I, I came in with this idea that the science, everyone will listen to the science. Once you know about the science, people will make the right decisions. And so we, this animal rights group that I was involved with there, we thought, let's pick an issue you can win. and. So we, we decided to try and stop trapping in the city parks. And I, as a student, I used research that came from the head of my department. And he had research that showed if you trap, um, must, this is a, it's an aquatic mammal. If you do a relatively a small amount of trapping of this animal, the population will actually increase. So the reason for trapping to get rid of the animals wasn't valid. So I had my science, I was coming into this public hearing and come to find out that the head of my department was testifying in favor of trapping in the parks. I was testifying opposite him using his data. And he got up and said, maybe she's, maybe she quoted me correctly and maybe she didn't. But the fact is the muskrats are going to die anyway, so you might as well trap them. <laughs> and for a the full face of science being important was, I learned pretty quickly that there's politics in science, <laughs> that politics and management. Went back to my advisor in the department and his reaction was, if you're going to oppose the head of your department, 
in a government hearing that just so shows how ignorant you are. And that was, yeah, that was their response. So after a couple of years of that, I switched to a different to University of Michigan where they had a female wildlife professor and, and then stayed on to do, to finish my master's, my bachelor's, my master's there. And I guess I would say that, that in that time, I really started to understand more of the complexities of the issues with, with wildlife ecology and what we, you know, we call back then natural resources management. And that there wasn't necessarily always just the right and the wrong response, right? And so started to understand the complexities of how do we, how do we help our, the natural world when we have impacted it so much? And so looking at invasive species and yes, I might not like sport hunting, but the, when you have an invasive species that's damaging the natural ecosystem, there are issues that you need to do to take to. Anyway, here's this initially anti-hunting, anti-trapping animal rights person and who started to learn that there are some places where, where hunting could be appropriate and done. My first work, my first job out of grad school was as a conservation writer for the oldest conservation organization in North America called Ducks Unlimited. And this was a conservation organization born in the 30s when there was drought here in North America. And they wanted to drought proof the prairies to preserve waterfowl because most of their members are duck hunters. And so it was really interesting to come into an organization where I really could see firsthand that there are people who hunt ethically they eat what they kill. They care about the environment. They mm -hmm. put their money where their mouth is. And so many of the protected areas in North America have come from hunting and fishing license revenue. And so that also being able to see how we start working with landowners. Oftentimes, there's, there could be conflict between ranchers and farmers who are out on the land and then you've got the wildlife and how do they, so often they've seen those as enemies. And the programs that they started developing both within Ducks Unlimited and other conservation organizations and government programs was learning how to work with the landowners so that they could help protect their way of life, also providing habitat for wildlife, which was and continues to be, I think, a really important way forward, reminding ourselves that we're all part of the natural world, not separate from it. And then they, the organization moved, relocated from the Chicago area to Memphis, and I chose not to, get, to continue with them. So I started doing some freelance, freelance writing work. And also then at around... So in that time period, I was looking for a psychotherapist and met a man who was also part Blackfoot, indigenous, and he had a teaching lodge where he, his elders had blessed him to go and teach some of the Blackfoot traditional ways to, 
to non-native peoples. And of course, being an environmentalist, I'm always very interested in people who are who live close to the land and have that have that really that knowing of their interconnectedness. And so I started um, studying with Chuck and learning some of the ways of black but spiritual traditions, way of ways of living with the earth and living with spirit. And so that opened up a, another chapter in, in my life and went to, went to Colorado on vacation, fell in love with this beautiful box canyon um, outside of Glenwood Springs. And this idea for a novel came to me. And I thought, mm. that's nice. I'm a nonfiction writer. I don't want to write a novel. But it had to do with a past life, somebody come, coming to Colorado, having a connection with the land needing to learn about your past life to figure out what you need to do in this lifetime. And so mm. that took me into an, an exploration of the history of Colorado and learning about the Ute people, who that's their traditional homelands. And so then I came back the next year because the idea wouldn't leave me alone. And I just started studying with Chuck, met an anthropologist who was working with the Ute people. They were doing survey work in the wilderness there looking for sacred sites. And so I got invited on to that trip and met a Northern Ute elder, Clifford Duncan. And we, he started teaching me. And so that I developed a, a relationship with him, which then over the many years, then eventually was, became part of this novel that I finally self-published many years after starting it. I'm um, called mm. the Redemption of Red Firewoman, and in this story, it, it blended what I've been learning about the, the Northern New peoples and their relationship to the land, their history of of genocide and being forced out of forced out of their homelands in the end, 1800s, and also combining with what I knew of working with private landowners and doing uh, wildlife conservation. So I was able to blend the two in, into this novel. And Joanna Macy had written an article about the work that reconnects. I read this probably in 2005. And her writing about the importance of honoring our pain for the world struck me. I was just, it, it was eye-opening, life-changing for me because I realized mm. that I had been numb for a long time. That going through the motions, you know, I, I was involved with, there's wonderful habitat restoration work taking place in the, in the Midwest here that I've been involved with for a number of years and continuing with activism work. But I just, but I, I realized that there was a part of me that was just numb. Mm -hmm. I really hadn't been able to touch into the deep grief of seeing things that were just wrong with the world and had been wrong with the world when I was 11 years old and when I'm 64 and they're still wrong and they're still happening. Anyway, I, I said, I have to study with this woman. So I you know, had that opportunity to really um, experience the work on a deep level with, and have the time to explore the many ways that the work can, can be offered. When, when Joanna's husband, Fran, passed away that was in 2010 she at that time convened 
a group of 12 people, 12 facilitators to, to sit with her and to both help support her in that time, but also to start that question of how does the work continue beyond Joanna? And so mm-hmm. at the time we were called stewards and we met with Joanna over um, a couple of years and really got an opportunity to start uh, asking the question of how does the work continue, especially when it's been associated with such a dynamic, brilliant person as Mm -hmm. Joanna is and still is. She's 94 now. And so it's within those conversations, I think that the idea, the nuggets of the work that reconnects network came into fruition. And then, and, and so now we have this wonderful network that was continuing to grow and develop where we're working to support facilitators, emerging facilitators, people who are in, interested in the work all around the world. And so I'm now a volunteer weaver. And the weavers are our, our, that team that is leading the organization at the moment and holding the vision for the organization. That's beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing your journey. I think one thing that struck me about your story was just how young you were when you first got involved in environmental activism. And it's it's something I think a lot about. I have a five-year-old, and so I'm always thinking about what are the experiences that I can co-create with him, give him access to that will shape him <laughs> as a human and, and not in like a controlled way, but just like in a way that continues to support this, the, the flourishing of life on earth and, and how sacred it is. And we, and in many ways, the pandemic obviously was horrific in many ways for many people. One of the, one of, and for us in particular, my, my son has, was hospitalized four times for various respiratory illnesses the months before the pandemic started. So we had already seen many parents' worst nightmare during the pandemic before the pandemic, where he was on a ventilator, on breathing support in the hospital. And so we, so we were very careful with him during the pandemic. We didn't know how something like he was getting that sick with just cold viruses. So we didn't know how something like COVID would impact him. But in that, we found there was this amazing little Waldorf preschool nearby that decided to transition to a 100% outdoor program. And so we, when we were comfortable, he started going there when he was about three years old. And so he's had this incredible experience of being in this beautiful wooded sanctuary classroom, (laughs) outdoor space all day. And it is, he loves being outside. Even when I pick him up from school, he still doesn't want to come inside, even though he's been outside all day long. Even just the littlest things, we we started um, an herb garden and a vegetable garden in the backyard. And he's a very picky eater. And so trying to get him to eat healthy foods has always been a bit of a challenge. But lo and behold, he just started going out there and picking the herbs off fresh and just eating them. And he was so excited to be able to harvest the giant zucchini that grew in our garden. And so all of these things, I think, 
seem like small things, mm -hmm. but shape who we are. And they're just joyful experiences to share with a young child who's just awakening to the world and taking things in and, and to see their joy. And I helped grow this thing. <laughs> and now I'm going to eat it because I helped to grow it. And, and that's, that is so important. The, when we fall in love with this world, right? And this, and the miracle of plants and growing and how do, how do you get a zucchini from this little seed? And that, and I, I believe that it's that magic and that falling in love that then gives us the drive and the grounding to then also want to protect it. We want to protect what we love. And if, if we have no, if, if the world, if the natural world is scary, then we're, we're not going to want to see the value and, and the beauty and feel that connectedness. And so it, what a wonderful way to grow up. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I think you also shared when you were speaking about your story about this idea of we're not separate from nature. We, we are nature. And you talked about that the department being called the Department of Natural Resources. <laughs> I hate that language, right? That language of natural resources, because it just it's such a commodification of the living world that we are a symbiotic part of that we would not exist were it not for all the interconnected living entangled wild world that is all around us it yeah. and, and you know, there and it's, there is a a value or it can be helpful to awaken people to the idea that there is value there's value in a forest right and so we can see it as we're interconnected. There are other beings. They're providing the oxygen that, that we breathe. The, their way in to valuing it would be to say, what am I getting out of this? So that, that, that idea that it's a resource does help people see, I think, the world and to be able to start to value it in a way that at least helps them to say, we just can't destroy everything. And as like a first step into, it, yeah. And then being able to say, and we're all interconnected, is that that's going to be the next step for some of us. And certainly, certainly indigenous peoples, that's where they're coming from initially, Western world mindset, whatever, this growth economy mindset at least it's a way in to be able to say, wait a minute, there's a reason why we need this. We need these beautiful wild areas and, and don't treat the earth as a waste dump. No. Yeah, I definitely hear that. Mm -hmm. And I, and I also get very nervous and have mixed feelings when I hear things like, like the whole carbon offset conversation or ideas of, yeah, how do we monetize or put a quote unquote dollar value on nature so yeah. that we can figure out how the market can support it? And there's it's a slippery slope, right? Because that ideology and that mentality continues to have us be separate from nature, right? And so it's like that. And 
are there immediate ways to protect certain parts of ecosystems using that sort of mechanism methodology? Yes. So it's, yes, it's a, it's a constant zooming in and zooming out to think about what is the, the way to move forward that honors the direction of life as much as possible. Yes. I'm thinking now of the, of the, this messaging now that is, uh, you know, that water is life. That has come from the the Standing Rock protests and, and awareness here again in the United States. And this that's a whole that's a different message than say twenty years ago when people would want to be saving a river. It may be more from that commodity point of view. Water's life. That's the that is the truth of it. And that I think has that the energy of interconnectedness in it. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. Yeah. My son has the children's book called Water is Life. I don't know if you've seen it, but it's beautiful and it's beautifully illustrated. And it it tells the story a bit of the Standing Rock and brings in some of the indigenous wisdom Mm -hmm. around water. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And speaking of that's an area that I'm so curious about and would love to dig into more because I've spent the last year probably or so a little bit more than that really digging into indigenous, the work of indigenous writers and indigenous thought leaders and have just been, there's been so much in that work that has felt so intuitively like the truth to me, like in my body viscerally. And, and what I've been so fascinated to see is how much of indigenous and traditional wisdom has now started to become validated by science and in a way that like scientists are like this is new we've just confirmed this and we're like "Mm." people for thousands of years have been doing that um and then also for my own sort of personal life thing so i'm i'm half pakistani half indian my dad was born in india moved to pakistan when he was nine my mom was born in pakistan and there were certain things that certain practices and healing modalities and things that she did that growing up I was like I don't I don't think that taking a teaspoon of honey with black pepper is going to help my sore throat and then lo and behold I think it was even a few years ago I saw some supplement that was like a throat supplement and it was like tea with black pepper embedded in it is found to have antibiotic property and so there's things like that where I'm reflecting on oh my gosh, there was all this wisdom in my own house growing up that I didn't even pay attention to because at that point I was still continuing to be so trained in Western modes of thought and Western medicine, which takes a much more like reactive approach versus a proactive healing approach and looks at things in in different compartments and body parts versus the integrated whole. And so anyways, I'm getting off on a tangent, but I just want to hear a little bit more about your, yeah, your experience working with indigenous elders and particularly, I think you studied shamanism under them. So I'd love to unpack and, li- and hear a little bit about that as well. Yes. And so first thing is that shamanism in and of itself is a generic, how it's used now is a generic term for, for different ways of viewing the world as seeing that everything is alive. Uh, everything has life, everything has spirit, that we have an ability to connect to spirit and to the, to the natural world. 
And so the term is a very generic term that actually comes from the word shaman comes from the Mongolian peoples, and this was their word for their healers. And then anthropologists came in. Okay, now we're going to use this word shaman to describe holy people, medicine people, and all different indigenous cultures. And so that's not accurate. The only show interesting, the only shamans really are the, the Mongolian people from their culture. But the word then as an adjective, shamanic, has now become part of the global languaging used to describe indigenous or, or ways that have come from indigenous understandings of spirit, animism, ways of working, that interconnectedness. Each culture, each tribe, each people has their own word for their holy people, their medicine people, and what they would call what they do. So no, mm-hmm. no indigenous person would say, I do shamanism. They, mm-hmm. you know, so they, uh, so that, that's the tricky part of that word is to use it as a generic sort of umbrella. But then when we work, start to learn about the particular, a, a particular culture, a tribe, that, that word doesn't ap- apply. It would just, it would be their healing work with that tradition. Some people are feeling, should we even use the word shamanic? And yet there's no word to replace it right now. So I think that if we understand where it comes from, that's an important first step in. But, that, but the word shaman really should not be applied to anybody except. And I was learning at a time too, back in the 80s and 90s, when I would say at least here in North America, the, this, the movement really being able to appreciate tribal peoples really embracing and coming back to their traditional ways wasn't as strong. So back in the 80s, 90s, there were teachers who were going out to teach their ways to non-Native people, but not necessarily. And even to this day, there are some, there are tribal peoples, some who say this needs to stay with our peoples. So much has already been taken away from us. Others are saying, the white Western people are the ones who need this, need to remember this because we're, and re, that there's value in helping them remember their inner connection. Mm-hmm. wanting to hold that tension and that privilege that, that of, of being um, gifted with these teachings. And so I've received teachings from individuals, individual elders who have then blessed me to share those teachings. And wanting to hold, hold that tension that I, I'm not a native person. We're, we're all indigenous. We all have indigenous ancestors, but at some point we knew the land. And so I'm grateful to have been, to learn from peoples who are indigenous to the lands that I'm on and have, and I guess the, and it's important that the, for me, the lessons have been about how yeah, how to be with the land that you're on and to be able to hear the trees and the rocks and the animals and to know that we are a part of that. There's this ways of living in a good way with all the beings of the land and the spirits of the land. And that that's what we're called to, into being is. So I, I'm grateful for, grateful for 
those teachings and awarenesses and and am really excited and happy to see that now within the tribal communities there is such a a reclaiming of their traditions in a way that is so empowering there there was and grateful for the generosity of being of they're being willing to share those teachings and allow us to everybody to remember that interconnectedness because we all have that mm-hmm. within us yeah and i think it's we know it intuitively it's like in our cells and our bones right and we and we've forgotten there's been all kinds of stuff layered on top of it i love the way that the spiritual leader Tishnat Han talks about the blank sheet of paper and all the things that went into creating the blank sheet of paper. And that for me is always, I love that story because he talks about the, the sunlight and the water and the cotton plants and the microorganisms that it took to like all the things. And it's just such a clear example of how everything is truly entangled and that we can't, when we try to, I think a lot of what I see in particular in the environmental space, but just in the ways in which we try to tackle these big complex global problems is we try to take them apart into their component parts and try to solve them independent of the other. Mm. You just can't do that. The world just doesn't work that way. One of the overwhelming things, too, when we step into how can I make a difference, when we realize there is so much that is interconnected, right? And it's not just one thing that there are so many different aspects that go into a particular concern that we have. And yet, because it's all connected, doing something in one area does have an impact and needing to have the the big picture in mind to be able to then network with others doing the other pieces to bring it together is important. Yeah. And yeah. And I have to say the one one area of the the big picture that I find really frustrating that mainstream environmentalists are still shying away from is human population size. Mm. And it is yeah. It is still the taboo subject to talk about. And yeah, we are between eight and nine billion people on the planet. And it's continuing to increase. And this is one of the largest impacts to everything, to literally everything. And it needs to come into the conversation. It has to, and it has to be a welcomed piece of the puzzle to then be able to say, there are too many people on the planet. We love people. We love babies. We love families. There's not a, yeah. I wish my third, my third and fourth siblings were never born. That's, yeah. But that to be able to say how, first of all, that needs to be, to be recognized as this huge contributing factor to climate change, to immigration, to every issue that you want to look at is being impacted by how many people are on the planet. Uh, And so 
how do we make that a part of the conversation so that then the answers to bringing that number into a more sustainable range can then also be done ethically, morally, empowering women, having every birth be child, be a wanted child, et cetera, et cetera. Because otherwise, everything else that we're doing, I believe, isn't really going to make much difference if we just continue to increase our population size and our consumption. And even at some point, bringing down consumption, is, which is vital, if the number of people still going up, it's math. But some, yeah, it's too much. It's so hard to bring that piece into a conversation and have it and, and be able to have a, a balanced conversation about it. It's such a trigger. I think I've read some studies that's, that have shown that based on scientists' best kind of modeling, about half, about four billion people is what the carrying capacity of mm-hmm. the earth actually is. And I don't know the underlying assumption. I don't remember the underlying Mm -hmm. assumptions of what does that mean in terms of how much each individual is consuming and all of that. Yes. But whatever the number is, it's not eight. It's not eight. Um, And I think it's so critical to have that conversation in the context of the fact that different people living in different parts of the world with different lifestyles have dramatically different impact on the earth. And this is not about reducing the population in the global south because women there are having more babies than women in the global north. That's not the conversation at all. And I think that there's conversations around exactly what you were saying, women's empowerment, birth control, right? The whole abortion conversation here in the United States is inextricably linked to climate, which many people don't think about that as being connected. Yes. Um, And girls' education and women's education and all of those things that Mm. have, that are benefits as they're synergistic in many different ways when there's so many positive impacts of continuing to empower women and support them. And and there's been so much research that shows that when you empower women and when they increase their income, they spend it on two things. They spend it on the health of their children and the education of their children. And that's been demonstrated time and time again in all different parts of the world. Because mothers, that's what mothers do. That's what you do as a mother. And so I think it's, I was, I actually recently came back from this training that I did with Nora Bateson. And she was, one story that she shared that I love is she was talking about the the 17 SDG goals. And we have this beautiful chart of all, they're all color-coded and everything's broken down into separate buckets and there's education and there's health and there's all these things. And alongside that, she put up this picture of um, a mother breastfeeding her child. And she asked the group the question of, what what does it take for this living reality, for this mother to be able to feed this child, to breastfeed this child, right? Think of all the different systems that are involved for that relationship to continue 
to thrive. You're talking about mm. the health of the mother. You're talking about her ability to have access to prenatal care and her ability to have access to nutrition. You're talking about the baby being born healthy enough to be able to breastfeed. You're talking about a safe environment for the mother and child, like all of these things and are just represented in that one mm. single picture. And so imagine a society that was built around trying to optimize for that. What's the version of our society that is like, what would society look like if we built everything around the goal of having mm. mothers be able to breastfeed their children? And it sounds it, like such in, a... In public, without, without being ashamed for it. Yeah, yeah. And, and yeah, if that was the measure of the, the health of a country, Rather than if it was, yeah, yeah, the health of a mother and a baby, right? Yep. Rather than this pretend economic system that we've created that pretends like we can just infinitely grow and extract from Mother Earth, and that there's no end to that. It right. just it you a five year old can understand that just doesn't make any sense yet. It's these things that we've just forgotten because we've been trained in certain ways that almost bypass the most basic questions sometimes right the yeah. only thing that can that continually grows without being checked is cancer yes and somehow we're emulating cancer in our in in our society yeah and, and yeah we value and it's just infinite growth yeah it's yeah gonna kill us what's your thought on i think this conversation around trying to change mindsets or trying to imbue values and people can get into really tricky territory that can have us go down scary paths. You think of, I don't know, Handmaid's Tale or something, right? A bunch of smart people getting in a room trying to figure out, like, how do we save the world? And, and there's, or how do we change people's mindsets? How do we get people to think like us? What's your kind of thought on like that and holding this sort of sacred perspective of life that does value all of it? And so like, how does this value shift happen, I suppose, is the question I'm getting at. Yeah. And I know from my experience, first from college to, to, to working at Ducks Unlimited was exposure and learn, being with having direct experience of something other than what I, I knew. And I came in with really strong views of about sport hunting and trapping and education helped as far as learning to see some complexity there and saying that it, no, it's just, it can't just all be, we don't kill animals to then being with people, working with them, people who I could see really loved the, they love nature. They love being out in it. Yes. And they also hunt and they kill these animals, they consume them. And then for me to be able to say, and so how is that different than me sitting here eating, if, if I'm eating meat, even if it's ethically sourced. And one way I thought these people, they at least took responsibility for the life that they took, that they put in their bodies. And certainly again, from our indigenous place, people and our indigenous histories, we had that relationship with the animals and the plants. I, it didn't totally change my, pers my perspective, I, but I was able to see where there is what I would call 
ethical relationships, ethical hunting. There's still trophy hunting is appalling to me. But mm-hmm. somebody who can go out and honor the animal, do it in a, in a humane way, consume that and respect it. I would not have been able to see that in my 11-year-old self. So having opportunity to experience something different and have up and have exchange conversation getting to know people can help change our understanding and as we're getting more and more polarized uh, for middle ground somehow middle ground compromise has taken on a, a, a negative tone that's what mm-hmm. you're losing if we yeah. compromise if we if there's a middle ground if it Somehow that's bad. How we can reclaim this space of compromise and learning about the other is really important. And there are different programs where you you see they get people together to have conversation. They're on different sides of the issue. And how do you build respect for difference? I think, and you realize that what's Fueling the extremes is fear. Hmm. I think on both, both sides, it's fear. And that somehow when we're afraid, we want to hold on to something. There's got to be something that's secured, right? In a world that's uncertain. Give me some certainty. And I read somewhere or heard some story where they're talking about the power of a cult and why people are willing to give up their their autonomy to a cult. And it could very well be the more uncertainty that there is that creates that fear, they'll give up things for a certainty. How do we hold that space for getting to know the other? And I feel like it, we can't reach everybody to reach out to those people that we can and who are willing to have that conversation with us. It's important. Yeah. The older I've got, the more I've learned, the more I am uncertain about many things in life, the more uncertainty increases. And it's because my perception has continued to expand. So while I may or intellectually think I understand a particular issue better or in a way that's deeper, I also see that there's no way for me to fully comprehend this issue and what the causes are and what the solutions are, what the responses might be, because there is some aspect of my perception that is limited, that cannot see what's emerging and bubbling under the surface, right? This like the Nora Bateson calls this the pre-emergence, like before the thing actually emerges, there's been things brewing in that soup for a very long time that we just don't know and we just can't see. So this is like the concept of tipping points and why they can be so surprising to us because we didn't see this thing that was bubbling underneath the surface. Mm -hmm. And her actually, so the training that I recently did with her was, it's called this warm data host, warm data lab host training. And it's one of the most incredible and simple practices or processes I've ever come across Mm -hmm. that addresses exactly, or I think is relevant to what we've been talking about. So it's a, 
So imagine a simple process where there's a bunch of people gathered in a room and you are offered a question. And it's a carefully curated question, but it's a simple question. So it might be something like, what is learning in the context of a changing world? Or it might be something like, what is home in the context of a changing world? And there's different chairs gathered in little groups, about three or four chairs, and everybody sits down somewhere. And each of those groups has, each of those gatherings of chairs is a context. So it might be economy, it might be family, it might be identity, it might be education, it might be health. And the idea is that people have conversations in these groups and you say, okay, what is learning in the context of a changing world, in the context of education, in the context of health? And you, you have these conversations and you are welcome to and encouraged to get up and move throughout the course of the, the hour that everyone's together. You're even encouraged to move while someone is talking. If you are just, you are felt that you want to move and you don't want to be part of that conversation anymore. And so you end up having this incredibly rich, complex experience where people are sharing their personal experiences and their personal understandings in a way that gets you out of the, I have a perspective, I've learned something, I'm talking about the issue, this is my position. And there's some of that for sure. Uh -huh. And I think the first, throughout the course of the training, we did one of these labs every day of this six-day training. And for myself, I found like the first session I attended, I was much more like in the issues. I was like, this is why this is true. And this is why this matters. And, the, and then I noticed that when I stepped back from that and shared more of my personal experiences and my personal lived stories that still had those contexts in the background, but I wasn't fighting for a position or I wasn't trying to convince somebody or I wasn't mm -hmm. trying to share how much I knew about this topic, that there was an opening and an, and an option and an exchange to happen that felt very different than when I was in the other space. And so I found it to be one of the most impressive ways to teach system of thinking in a way that just seeps into your body in a not so intellectual kind of way. Beautiful. Beautiful. I think that's the gratitude piece in the work that reconnects those, some of the, the prompts for the open sentences, uh, you know, again, from that generic point of view of what is it that, what is it that you love? What makes you come alive? The way you were inspired yeah. by when we have those, those prompts with someone we don't know, we're coming in at, a, at this human level that we can all relate to. That's not about an issue. And getting to know somebody from that perspective and, and how that can open the door, as you're saying with this, to being able to see in a different way and find some commonality and understand the complexity and not it be, to be curious and open. That sense of as we get older, we're, there's more uncertainty. So to be curious and to realize that things change. And that to be 
and then to be able to respond to what is emerging. So with that knowledge that emergence happens, then to be able to go, wow, I was really thinking we were going in this direction Uh plan. And then look what just showed up. And, And when we know about emergence and understand systems, then rather than going, oh, wait, that's not according to the plan, we go, wow, that's the jewel. Yeah. Now let's, okay, I'm going to, I love this plan. I put a lot of work into it, but I'm going to say, okay, what's arising here? And do we shift? Do we pivot? And having that ability to change course and see what's emerging and value what's emerging is key for, I, I think, being able to move forward in a really creative and resilient way. Yes, the, this, in some ways, that idea of, yeah, we don't know is really a gift as opposed to wanting to be certain. And here, yeah. yeah. So if we can train ourselves and each other in the space of ad- adaptability and to be looking for what's emerging as the right way to go, or is, or it's a different mindset that, that rigid, this is the truth. Yeah. And it's, it's so natural and intuitive for us that we forget, right? If you're, a, if, for example, if you're a parent or if you're in any kind of a relationship that you are constantly shifting and reassessing. And as a parent, you might pick a school for your child that you think is amazing and incredible, and they might not thrive there. And then you might say, okay, we might need to shift course here, right? We do these things naturally in our natural ways of being in our life. And I think oftentimes in professional contexts, because we've been so trained to look at things in a linear fashion, where it's let's define the problem in a very narrow way. Let's come up with metrics that we can use to measure it as if we could ever measure such complex things as life. And then let's design a solution that's going to address that very narrow thing that we've defined. And then let's measure the success again, as if we could ever know what the emergent properties or what resulted from that work and be able to measure it fully. And I'm not saying that there's no place for scientific thinking and that there's value in that. Of course there is, but there is what I think is missing from so much of the ways in which we educate ourselves and the ways in which our systems and our workplaces are set up is also the other perspective, which is how do you then zoom out and acknowledge that no matter how much scientific thinking you bring to this or how detailed you are, there will always be emergent properties that you will never know and you will never be able to predict or control or measure and to just allow for the grace of that and to not just always be, I guess I think of it as always, it's like the the wide angle lens and then the narrow angle lens of a, of a camera and be continually toggling between those two when you're thinking about like, how do you create change in the world or how do you support emergent change? I've tried to, I've started to shift my language. It's, I, I realize I, for a long time, I was so much in the space of like, how do we create the change? How do we create the change? And then I shifted to like, how do we co-create the change? How do fix? And now I'm like, no, it's about like, how do we create the conditions for change to emerge? Like that to me feels, and it's not easy, right? It's not easy to figure out what does that mean? And what does that mean for exactly what I do in this exact moment? 
but I think it's it's the wrestling with it. It's supposed to be a hard question. It's supposed to be in the wrestling is where the unexpected will emerge or where the openness to a path that is different from the one that you had thought that you were going to follow is going mm-hmm. to come from. And that's where all of I've been reading more. So Nora's father, Gregory Bateson, was a pretty well-renowned uh, anthropologist and cyber genesist. And he talks a lot about evolution and how anything new in evolution comes from some sort of divergence from the pattern. And so a lot of their work has been around, like, how do you support that? How do you support the environment that will allow for that? Mm-hmm. And yeah, this it's been I think it's just like fresh in my mind because I've been so deep in this work for just in recent times. But it's really shifting how I'm thinking about how social change even happens. It's it's and, and it's both and we have agency in this world mm-hmm. for sure. And also we can't control everything <laughs> and we can't predict everything. Yeah. And we do, though, have control most of the time by how we respond to what is coming into our our field at that. Yeah. So, yeah. It, again, that idea of do we welcome and are we looking for what's emergent, what's new, what's what it, who who or what is that outlier that is actually pointing the direction point it in the way that we need to go. If we embrace that, if we're looking for it, again, if we were, we're encouraging that, you know, that we do have some control over. Yeah. And I've been thinking a lot about this in the context of the statistics, um, at least that I've read in the United States. Is, I think I read somewhere it's one in 40 boys have been, are diagnosed with autism in the United States nowadays. And so the incidence of children being diagnosed with neurodivergence, and I hate using these terms, but you have to call it something, right? right? So some sort of neurodivergence. And my, there's, we've noticed there's something neurodivergent about our son. We haven't quite, we're exploring it and playing around with it and trying to look at it from different perspectives. But at first, when I started to notice that, I was terrified because I was like, oh my gosh, I can't. He went through all these surgeries. We just got through all this medical stuff. I just can't deal with this. It's too much. It's too much. And now my, it's, my perspective on it has shifted so fundamentally mm-hmm. because I started to pay really close attention to my son and the ways in which he was and, and trying to notice the ways in which he was perceiving the world. And so, for example, there was a period of time when he was a bit younger where he wanted to take walks in the neighborhood. And he loved looking at the houses and all the different, you know, colors and different ways that they were decorated and whatever. And so first he was like, he wanted to continually do the same loop in the neighborhood because he wanted to keep looking at the same houses. And then and then he started to, he wanted to like see all the houses from different angles. So he would ask me to pick him up so he could see it from, from the left side and he could see it from the right side. And he wanted to get higher so he could have a different view. And then he would want to go to the street behind the house so he could try to get a peek of the backyard and the different perspective of the house. And I just thought, 
How incredible is this? How incredible is it to be oriented, to be seeking different perspectives of the same thing? And he did the same thing. We got him an aquarium tank for his fifth birthday. And he did the same thing with the tank. At first, he was like really focused on looking at it head on. Then he went to the side and was looking at it from the side and then this side. And then he asked, he was like, can you pull it out? Because he like he wanted us to pull it forward so he could see it from behind because it was up against a wall. And it's just all of these things just it. I, I came to realize what if the incident of and this, is, this might sound a little bit out there, but it was just a thought that came to my mind is like, what if these children that are being that that are have some sort of neurodivergence is exactly what humanity needs, which is this ability to see things in a way that's a little bit different, to process emotions in a way that's a little bit different from the way that other that most people do. What if those are the openings? What if those are the little cracks that open yeah. that helps us to shift the ways in which we see the world and then in the ways in which we respond? So now my perspective is what mm. a gift that he has that he's sharing with me because he encourages me to look at things in a different way and to process my own emotions in a, in a different way and to feel my emotions, mm -hmm. right? Sometimes he has these really big emotions and my natural tendency is to like, my immediate tendency is like, how do we calm this down? And now I'm like, nope, how do we feel it even more? Bring it up. Sometimes I have to calm down because yeah. you've got like an appointment to get to or whatever. Yes. But I'm, yeah. Wow. Uh, what a teacher. It, well, and, yeah. and you're, and you are open to it, which that piece of you're, you're being willing to see the gift in it. And what is, what am I here to learn and to what can he teach me so that you have, you can have this relationship with him and what's coming through. So that curiosity and your willingness to, see things differently, which comes from your understanding of system theory, right? <laughs> so that reinforcing this idea of, of embracing, embracing what's new, what's divergent, <laughs> and then seeing where it's going and it's taking you in a whole different, um, def a different road, different perspective than you could, than you ever planned for. Absolutely. He is my greatest teacher by far. And I have, I've done a lot of personal growth work, as you might call it, but there's nothing like being a parent that teaches you and helps you grow. So I wanted to dig a little bit more into your work with Joanna Macy because, wow, what a gift to be able to have spent time learning from her and with her and being mentored by her her work and and I had read some of her books before I found you has been so helpful for me in my own processing of the grief that comes with understanding these big global issues and the depth of the challenges that we're facing and I certainly went through my and <laughs> as it's not like one dip like it they keep coming and you have to keep working your way through it. But I also feel like her practices have been really helpful in 
helping me to continue Mm -hmm. to move through the work. And I remember the one session that we did during our time together, which I don't remember which one. Maybe it was the seeing with new and ancient eyes. I don't remember which one it was, but I just cried the entire session. I basically literally just sat there on video crying for the entire, which that in and of itself, I think, speaks volumes because I, norm, in, in most contexts, people would have been like, oh, why aren't you turning off your video? But I, yeah, I mean, that, I just felt so much better after that. I realized I had been holding mm. so much in and and there was something that you shared in that session that was just so profound for me that sunk in, in a way that I hadn't thought about it before, which was this idea that the opposite of grief is actually love. Mm. And that really hit me so hard because I realized how much I had been numbing my grief in my attempt to just get through the day. Mm-hmm. And not just grief about these big global issues, but my mom had passed away a few years. My mom passed away a few years back and it was quite sudden. And so there was a lot of grief there. And it was at the same time that my son was recovering through a lot of his surgery. And so it was just like a really difficult time where I feel like I never really processed that grief properly. And there was a lot, I think in me but this idea that when you try to numb the grief you actually numb those feelings of love too and both in a giving and receiving direction and so that i was very grateful to you for holding the space for that and that insight because i think it something in me shifted after that session Mm. yeah and and, and to me that the honoring our pain piece of the work that reach next to me is the true brilliance mm-hmm. of the work and where and it's precious because we don't have the space we're not encouraged to feel those feelings and of course there are times when we have to compartmentalize to get from one thing to the next and but if we live that way continuously it does take a toll because the feelings that we have are real. They're a reaction to what's happening. And when we're told by society that, you know, you're supposed to be happy all the time or what's wrong with you mm. when you, when we're feeling down or depressed or hopeless or furious, th- there's that question of that there's something wrong with you. Supposed to think, no, I'm, these are, I'm responding to this, there being something wrong in the world or wrong, wrong in my world. So to, to change our relationship to those feelings has been really powerful for me as well in this work to be able to, to recognize I'm feeling this for a reason. I'm going to feel better letting it move through. And because so much of the time we're afraid that if we tap into it, we'll get lost in it. Yeah. We're already lost in it if we're numbing out to it. Yeah. Uh, and, but we also need that safe space to do it and the permission to do yeah. it. And for example, you trusting the group enough to show us your tears gave people, everybody else permission to be with their tears. And so it was a gift that you allowed 
that you shared that with everybody else and that we could share it with you. Because then that was like, yes, this is part of what we do together is we support each other and we witness each other and we don't shut somebody off or pass you the Kleenex or say, it's okay, calm down. Yeah. This is real. And then when we, when those emotions move through us, wow, then we create some space for those partner emotions and, and they'll come back. It's not a done, but now we have a, now we have a way of being able to be empowered by them when we're afraid and we're made to feel ashamed of those feelings, then we're just constricted. And I, I think so much sometimes depression is our feeling shame about how we're feeling and not mm. being able to let it out. And so I, did, I, yeah. I, to have space to feel is so important. And I think that's truly the gift of the work that reconnects and then other grief work that people are doing, but, but our honoring our pain is more than just grief, right? It is, it is that righteous anger as well. And anger gets a bad rap too. And, and certainly rage and hate is not anger, <laughs> but that anger also too is saying there's something wrong here and I want, and it's not okay. So how do we take that and work with it to bring about justice? So. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And it was such a gift to be, to be able to be a part of a group that supported that and wasn't like trying to fix me. <laughs> wasn't like trying to stop it or wasn't shaming it or wasn't even, weren't even, it didn't even seem like, because there's a worry, oh, I'm, I'm making people feel uncomfortable. Right. But I think, and I don't know if it was this particular group of people, but or it was, I'm sure, partly a result of the container that you had created in your facilitation of this beautiful space. But even with our most trusted partners and friends and, and people, we often feel like we can't express those emotions because the tendency often tends to be for that other person to try to make you stop, to try to make you feel better in the moment, to try to make you see the bright side of things. And that's like, that's not what's helpful in those moments. Mm -hmm. And, and then it it gets, it turns into a spiral where you're like, oh, okay, if I show this emotion to this person, this is what they're going to do. And I don't really want to go through that. And, and it's, and it's not anybody's fault either. It's like the societal structures and the sort of norms that we've created around us. And so breaking through that is really hard. Mm -hmm. And it's, yeah, I guess it's what everything we've been talking about. It's like the people who are able to to do that in spaces where that doesn't often happen. That's how you start to make some of those shifts and those changes and the people who honor the who honor that when it does happen and hold it and encourage it when it does happen yes. is what yeah. And I also too find that sometimes I trying to protect the people closest to me. Yeah, sometimes I'll have a tendency to say, Maybe I'm not going to tell them how, how much of in despair I am right now because I don't want to put that on them. But then yeah. they have a space of people who were choosing to be together to share this, then I can be totally free in how I'm feeling, not worrying about what am I putting on somebody else. And so to have a ritual space 
is really freeing um, because I, I'm not worried about, oh, what am I dumping on you? Yeah. And I find that even, even sometimes a therapist relationship doesn't always provide that container. If you're working with a therapist who perhaps doesn't understand the extent of the global challenges we're facing. And so they're, if they're not bringing that perspective and empathy into the conversation, it often, I think, is difficult to express why you're feeling the, the depth of grief that you're feeling if they don't understand mm -hmm. it. So this, I think that's the other, I think, amazing aspect of the work that it provides that context because most people are in have chosen to do that work or are be have chosen to be part of that group is because they're bringing some knowledge of of what's happening in our global society and, and the destruction of our planet. They already know that they're coming to the space with that. So there's it's a different experience. I yes, think. yes, I agree. I think that's the the brilliance that that Joanna and others at that time that she was working with had to see that this was necessary and needed at the time. And in fact, the work started off just as despair and, and personal empowerment in the nuclear age. Gratitude was actually added in to the process later as a grounding piece, but to that recognizing this was something that was missing as we were addressing global annihilation from nuclear weapons where that's, that horror for her started to then bring this work forward. How are you seeing the work continue to evolve as Joanna is stepping aside from doing the facilitation trainings herself? And there's a, a, the, the group of, the new group of elders that include yourself. What are some of the ways that you're seeing it evolve? One, the Joanna's, I, whether this was it was her choice to have this be open source. So never had official trainings to be a facilitator. It was learn, here's the book, go to some, go to as many workshops as you can, and then start doing the work. And, and so there's a real gift in that. And I think too, now as the, as issues get more complicated and our emotional uh, reality is also more nuanced and challenging, more aware of all the trauma that we're experiencing, I do feel that guidance for skills that are important as a facilitator are needed in this time. And so I think that's one of the, the ways that the network is aiding facilitators is um, giving some guidance for what are additional experiences, trainings that might be helpful to be able to hold a space and do that. Again, there's no requirement for this, but we are giving a lot of support and continuing to develop um, resources and guidance for um, facilitators and us around um, issues of privilege and oppression and justice and equity is really an important now component of the work to reconnect and, and the awareness as, as a facilitators and the issues that we're dealing with. So mm -hmm. I see the, the depth of experience that a, a facilitator needs 
in increasing since I would say when I first started doing this work, that there's mm-hmm. more complexity that to be working in spaces around different cultures around the world. So we're grow- we're continually growing and gaining more skills and awareness and bringing that out to people. Mm. So that's exciting. And learning from different cultures, yeah, the, now is the, the work's being you know, translated into so many languages and how, and, and we're learning as facilitators are coming into the network, how things, how they're making adaptations so it works with their culture, with their life experience. So bringing more adaptability to the work is Mm. really exciting. And there is, those of us who've had the opportunity to have studied with Joanna for so many years, wanting to continue to be able to bring some of that experience and and that, that, that direct sort of transmission, wanting to be able to to bring that forward to the next generation that will never get to know Joanna in person. Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately, there are lots of recordings of her. And so creating a platform where people have, can have access to that and learn and learn that way. Being able to carry forward some of the ways of facilitating or holding space that isn't in the book, but that you learn just from being and doing. And, and that's a different, you know, so this is a new generation of people learning the work and experiencing the work with no direct connection to Joanna. And so that it's opening the door for even more innovation. And what I hope we can continue to do through the network is to be able to provide some in-depth experience that doesn't happen now or it's harder to do. You you do a 10-day intensive and you're with people for that length of time. There's spaces that are created for the kind of very conversations like we're having right now and that open space sharing of information and learning how to be in community and doing the practices and doesn't happen when you do a day long or a weekend or do something online. And so are are there ways of, we're looking to to be able to create that kind of more intensive experience down the road for people. It's really important work. Getting it to the people who need it most is continues to be, continues to be a challenge. How to reach the communities of people who are really being impacted the most are often the people who don't have time to come to a workshop. Uh, right? Yeah. That also is the, the growing edge that we're exploring is how, how to bring this work um, out to more communities and how to support the facilitators doing, doing the work to be able to bring it to communities uh, that are in most need. Are you seeing increasing diversity in the people who are learning the practices and the trainings and becoming facilitators of this work? Yes. And there's more, we would like to see much more diversity as well. So we're, and we're seeing diversity in two different ways. We, one with 
within any particular country. And I'm here, I'm in the United States. So seeing more people of, of color coming in to the work is really important. We're also getting diversity of, of countries and, you know, and mm-hmm. cultures. And that brings a whole, a different aspect of diversity and complexity. So yes, we're seeing it and we're wanting to see a lot more of it and are working to do that very thing. So that is a priority for the work that reconnects network is continuing mm-hmm. to, to diversify in, in all those ways. I love the way Joanna T- Macy talks about the great turning that we have this we're in this time now that we have this opportunity to really shift from a global society based on industrialism and extraction to one that's based on the thriving of all living beings. And I'm curious what what you say to people who are ready to participate in the great turning, but they might be feeling overwhelmed by the scope of the challenges or aren't certain where they can uniquely and meaningfully contribute the 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 great turning is all around us happening now anything that we do that's in alignment with our values of holding that that vision of a world of justice and love and and equanimity and equality and all sustainability anything that we do that supports that we're already contributing to the great turning. Yeah. We can't fix or solve it all. There's just no way. And we're each individual. We have what we have to, to, to give and offer and we can't do it all. So on some levels that can be depressing. And on the other hand, it can be empowering to be able to say, okay, so what I'm doing contributes. And we understand from that systems point of view that everything goes into the system. And the more that we align with other people who are also in that space of how am I contributing to the great turning, we're we're multiplying our impact. And so to say, find, find what makes your heart come alive because we need, there's so many issues out there that you can choose from. So what's, what's one or two that resonate in your being? It's something that's important and that you love and find other people who are interested in the same thing and start to work together. That, that is how the great turning is happening. And to let go of the need to have to be involved in everything. And that can be hard, especially when there are so many things that we care about, but to be able to do some discernment Okay, with the time that I have, the energy that I have, these two issues are what I'm going to focus on and being aware of how they interconnect with everything else. And then to give yourself permission to do what you can in those areas and not feel guilty that you're not doing something else because that just sucks our energy. Yeah. Or that you're not doing enough. doing enough. It's never, you'll never feel like it's enough if you go down that road. Right. And it never is enough. But is it enough to contribute to change? Yes, it is. And when, when we look back on social change, major social change, it's happening because there are so many different 
groups and people involved. There's no grand plan. And we need life force to be able to give to the issues that we care about. And if we're just being beating ourselves up because we're not doing enough, then we're really not doing it. Then we're not doing anything. Yeah. And, And then to encourage others doing other things. So then I think it's just fun to be aware of, oh, there is a group that's working on food sovereignty over here. And so I can be and that's great and be aware. And then do we network and share information, but let them do that piece. I'm doing my piece and we're going to share information. Work, maybe we're working on a bigger issue together. And so then we come together. But yes, it's uh, Clarissa Pinkola Estes has this great quote about what is within, what is within our grasp, within our, to be able to do. And, and that's what we're called to. I think that might be a beautiful way to wrap up our conversation. So I guess the last question just might be, who would you like to platform on the podcast? Rob Hopkins and his book, From What Is to What It, is a, it's just a wonderful book. And so to interview him about the book and imagination would be what I'd love to hear that. There's a young man whose name I can't pronounce from Colorado and he's indigenous and he's been a part of the a group of teens that's sued the government over climate change and then if you want to get into the whole nuclear the whole world of nuclear waste there's a woman named Leona Morgan who she's Dene and she has been working fighting the they're wanting to store high level radioactive waste in in New Mexico and in Texas. And mm-hmm. so she's been very involved in 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 that and the uranium mining on the the Navajo Nation. Yeah. Brilliant. Kathleen, thank you so much. This was such a wonderful conversation. And I'm so grateful for you and for the work that you're doing in this world and for all the people that you're touching with with your beautiful work. I know we're all the better for it. Thank you. And thank you for this podcast and for reaching out to different voices to to share this, your passion with others in in this way. And you do a beautiful job of holding, holding space and asking good questions and reflecting back. So this has been a joy. Thank you. If you liked the episode and want to hear more conversations where we explore how a more beautiful world might emerge, subscribe or follow on your favorite podcast app or the Entangled World Pod YouTube channel. If you loved it, support the project at patreon.com forward slash entangled world. Thank you for listening and for coming on this journey together.